Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Teacher Takeaway podcast for Season 3, Episode 30 on Wellbeing Education. I'm James, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Alice Vigors. Hey, James. How you doing? Good, Alice. Good to be back with you. Yes, it's been a while. It has been. And we have a lovely uh, guest on the podcast tonight, David. David, welcome to the Teacher Takeaway podcast. Yeah, thanks, James and Ellis. Appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to the conversation. Before we get underway, our episode focus for this episode 30 is wellbeing education. Our inquiry question is, why is it important for schools to get wellbeing right? Before we get into the conversation, I'm just going to introduce you to a little bit more about David and the work he's currently done. So David is a renowned speaker, author, and education consultant specialising in wellbeing science. He collaborates with government entities and top global schools to shape wellbeing strategies. David is the co-founder and director of the Wellbeing Distillery in Melbourne, Australia. He serves on the Dubai Future Council for Education and the PISA Board. David is the author of the best-selling book, 10 Things Schools Get Wrong and How We Can Get Them Right. With a background in education and extensive project leadership, he promotes wellbeing science in school systems in the UAE and Hong Kong, drawing from his experience at the Institute of Positive Education and over 15 years of teaching in Australia and the UK. How about that, David, for a bit of a wrap? <laughs> no, I pre- appreciate that. Uh, and- you can keep going if you like, James. No one ever really <laughs> says anything nice about me, so I appreciate that. Thank you. No. <laughs> I'm really excited because I haven't heard the to- terminology of wellbeing science before, so I look forward to getting into that a little bit further. But David, obviously, 15 years teaching, what made you decide to go this way in the wellbeing side of things in education? Yeah, thanks, James. My mum is a career educator, former principal, and founded her own school, and so education teaching's always been in my blood, but... Um, I've always really felt that great teachers, good teachers, teachers in general get into this craft, not really to teach maths or to get kids into university, but because they want to make a difference in the lives of the next generation. They love, they love kids. And um, I think, you know, what happens in schools, in good schools and schools in Australia around the world is every single school in the world, and we work with over a thousand of them, but every single school in the world has a focus on well-being. But often it's kind of unintentional or non-strategic or it's just kind of gut feel or goodwill and schools create these you know lovely communities but there's not a lot of intentionality or strategic focus around well-being and so we've always felt that there's a bit of a missing opportunity in many schools to not only um accept the heritage of the school and embrace what's already working well but to take cutting-edge science and to, to distill it um into an application that elevates the well-being of well-being and effectiveness of teachers and students in the the broader community. So, I'm a kind of nerdy scientist at heart, psychology degree. Like I love the science, but actually I love the way the science can elevate the teaching craft, and that's kind of my passion is you know in that exact kind of the the balance between science and practice. Do you remember the moment that you you kind of had, or or the place you were at when you're like. I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to start like you were talking about the connection of obviously how you got to the wellbeing distillery and the name there, but that moment when you're like, stuff it, I'm going out, something needs to be done in this space. Yeah, I do. Actually, um, the very first, the best teacher I've ever seen 
teacher at uh, McKinnon Secondary College in Melbourne in my very first teaching gig, actually, lovely government school um, in Melbourne and teacher there, Jason, who is and was um, the most brilliant connector. And I used to, as a rookie teacher, first year teacher, I used to just be a bit of a pest and sit in the back of Jason's class like regularly whenever <laughs> I had a free lesson, I'd just sit in the back of his class and just watch the way he connected with kids. And this this guy was a genius at orchestrating connection and relationships and the the bond the rapport he had with kids was just kind of mind-blowing and um and I, I loved the way the first three three to maybe five minutes of every lesson some people might say he wasted in in inverted commas wasted that five minutes but what I saw was just this intense capacity to connect with every child and that first five minutes massively kind of amplified the next 40 minutes because of that connection yeah. and and so that was the first time I really thought, wow, there's something magical about the way outstanding teachers connect um, and um, you know, elevate the, the students around them. So that was the moment I think where I thought, well, wow, there's something magical here, but can we, it, it is magical. And I still think it is. And it's not just magical. We can also learn from that and we can embed it into our craft. And so that's where I wanted to go and study the science of all of this, the science of wellbeing, um, and see if we can help educators around the world learn to be a little bit more like Jason. Yeah, I really love that that story that you share because, you know, there are many episodes that we've had on the podcast previously where we talk about the importance of making those strong connections with students and, you know, those first five minutes, like you said, some would see that as wasted time, but that's a really prime opportunity to hook those kids in make them feel safe in that environment before you tackle that learning, which is hugely important yeah. for our students. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's, it is about both, you know, students feeling safe, seen, and that they belong. And that's entirely mm. what it was about. Um, and it's, and the relationships is, is just part of and important, but it is just part of wellbeing science. There are a whole you know, a range of other uh, domains in the science as well that we're um, really fascinated by, but I think the relationships obviously sits at the heart and, and what interestingly, what we saw, Ellis, and I don't know if your other guests have noticed this as well, but um, Jason is an outlier. He does things differently. He's, he's eccentric and different and wonderful and brilliant because of that. Um, and often, unfortunately, in the uh, literature, in the scientific literature, even in or especially meta-analyses, unfortunately, educators like him get kind of deleted from the thinking because he does things differently. He's not normal. He's not average. Um, he's an outlier. And in fact, that's kind of been the the real passion of mine is I'm not so interested in the meta-analyses. I'm more interested in what is it that the outstanding teachers do? What are the outliers? What are they doing differently that we can all learn from? Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of is a nice, really good segue into my question around what is wellbeing education? How would you yeah, well, how would you unpack that and describe that for our listeners? Yeah, let me let me sw switch it around a little bit. Just for, we were joking about this earlier, but in your mind, Alice, what's <laughs> what would you like? What is well being in schools? Forget about well being education for a moment. But if 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 I said to you, I'm running a well being school, what would that mean to you? Do you think? Oh, that's a really good question. I think um, oh, a well being school in my mind would be a school that focuses on strong connections it focuses on building a culture and an environment that's psychologically safe for all of its students its staff um, its parent community um, I'd say it's one that focuses on providing students with 
strategies to handle different situations. Um, Doing great. Doing great. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> Put in the hot seat. Would you no, add no, anything else to that, James? Uh, I like to summarise what you were saying, Alice. It's it's meeting the needs of the every individual with within that school because it's about the, meeting the needs of obviously foremost the students, but our st- staff, our parents. Um, so make sure that we're meeting the needs of of every person. Um, you know, that we've got those connections. Everyone's got expectations for success and everyone can really thrive and flourish based yeah. upon what we've got implemented because that's what we want. Yeah, be- beautifully said. And, and therefore, um, I would add that kind of this very specific uh, uh, field of wellbeing education is exactly what you guys have both said, um, but probably just with a slight tweak, and that would be it's a it's a very intentional, strategic evidence-informed version of that where we you know just as we would be super deliberate and conscious about the way we're teaching maths or the the science curriculum or the the grade one literacy curriculum we were super kind of precise and intentional and deliberate strategic evidence-informed around the way we're teaching grade one kids to 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 read i've got i've got a daughter in prep here in melbourne (laughs) um but we also want to take that same intentional strategic evidence-informed approach to well-being looking at the best well-being science it's emerging from the best universities in the world and you know there are hundreds of studies being published every week around well-being well-being science so we're looking at the science we're trying to digest that and allow it to inform and, and enhance the intentionality with which we're doing all of the stuff that you guys talked about enhance the strategic way we're doing everything you spoke about and making sure that everything is evidence informed um and that we're measuring it effectively and and adapting in, in a really strategic way as well. So it's really just that intentionality, the strategy around it and the evidence informed nature of of what what makes wellbeing education what it is. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that the the science of wellbeing is something that's becoming a little bit more prominent in the field of education? People are kind of seeing or reading more about the wellbeing science and understanding it a little bit more and how to apply it in the classrooms. Yeah, oh, for sure. You know, we're seeing governments around the world in, and even, you know, especially in Australia, really embracing wellbeing science um, to inform the way policies are being written. Um, there's a lot of money being funded you know, in, in Victoria, uh, New South Wales, South Australia, other states as well. There's specific money funded into um, evidence-informed um, uh, tools and strategies that schools can harness around wellbeing science. So, yeah, it's becoming much more mainstream. And in fact, it's actually one of the silver linings of COVID, the pandemic, I would say. Um, obviously, some of us were affected by the most severe you know, consequence of COVID. But one of the silver linings of COVID was an enhanced awareness of the role that educators play as a frontline well-being kind of force that we have to, to nurture, the not only to protect the uh, mental health of students, but also to optimise their well-being. And, and so I think there's kind of a general awareness in the community of the role that teachers and the schools play in well-being. Um, yeah. And there's an enhanced emphasis on um, the evidence base that's emerging. And, and in part, because the science is getting better. In part, we're just more informed about it. Um, in part, you know, positive education, well-being education is, has been working. You know, we've been working in this field for 10 years and making trying to make as much noise as we can around it. In part, because the evidence, like the, um, we know that well-being education, when done well, can significantly enhance well-being and academic performance of students as well. So we now have a pretty significant evidence base showing this is not just a nice thing you do to make sure kids feel happy singing Kumbaya at lunchtime. This is (laughs) kind of really kind of a a proper hardcore science. It's informing our our craft and and evolving our, our craft as educators. So for lots of reasons, yeah, I think there's a much bigger awareness emphasis uh, on well-being science. Yeah. It's it's really interesting to watch kind of, 
the space evolve. I was just going to add on, sorry, Alice, to what you were saying and going back to one of your your points when you were talking about what, what is well-being in schools, David, and when you're talking about being strategic and intentional, yeah. it would be really interesting to look at um, obviously, for our curriculum, we have, you know, a syllabus there, then we have a scope and sequence that maps out the syllabus there, then we have a teaching and learning program, etc. But it'd be really interesting to look at how many schools have a scope and sequence to touch on wellbeing and how many weekly teaching and learning lessons are going on and how do they, you know, it, it, because I think at the moment still, like you were saying, wellbeing is such a huge area and there's so many you know, I guess businesses and organisations within that space trying to get into schools that mightn't be so evidence-based. But I think that there's still a bit of work to be done. Um, uh, My experience is in New South Wales. I can't talk uh, abroad, but I think that there's a lot more to be done when we talk about the science of wellbeing in schools and not leaving it to a guessing game and just saying we do this for our kids for well-being it has to be intentional it has to be planned yeah. and it needs yeah. to be mapped out you know so that that point really resonated with me yeah and i, I and i agree you know that the scope and sequence that i mean there are many many schools uh in australia particularly and we are leading the world really i'm a little bit biased but i think that would be <laughs> i think most of our american colleagues and british colleagues would agree that australia is really leading the world in this field um and there are many, many Australian schools that do have a really well-designed scope and sequence around wellbeing education, wellbeing science, positive education. Um, but yeah, that, that's crucial to get that bit right. But also just behind that, obviously, it's the same in maths or science or literacy, that the teacher, the, the capacity, the confidence, the competence of the teacher to teach wellbeing science is arguably or unarguably more important, actually, than the scope and sequence of the curriculum. And unfortunately, that's probably the biggest mistake we've made in the field um, is assuming that, that, you know, a teacher is able to pick up flow theory or resilience science or the science around gratitude or hope and just kind of kind of teach it. Um, Whereas you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't get a year 10 maths teacher or year 11 or 12 maths teacher teaching maths without extensive training in maths, you know, Um, but we kind of assume that kind of every teacher can teach well-being which um, isn't the case especially if you want to teach it really well and effectively especially if you're leveraging the science like it's pretty technical the skills are pretty sophisticated the science is challenging so yeah so it's partly about scope and sequence partly it's about empowering upskilling the the teachers Um, and just the last point I wanted to make James is um, again like with maths um, teaching well-being poorly can cause a negative impact you know one of the experiences we had at Geelong Grammar School, which was, you know, is and was the world's first positive education school, really, with a whole school approach around wellbeing. And I was there for 10 years and kind of helped lead the wellbeing education program there. But one of the the mistakes we made was teaching of um, mindfulness poorly to a group of year 10 kids. And actually the measurement, the 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 um the measurements or the metrics we we used to measure the impact of that showed that we'd actually kind of done harm. In fact, we'd kind of put kids off mindfulness because we weren't. Uh, we didn't have uh, teachers properly trained. You know, we, we were delivering a curriculum that was kind of probably not not as rigorous as it could have been. And actually, we we kind of put some of the kids off mindfulness because it wasn't delivered well. So the thing around well-being is, you, yeah, delivered poorly or with, a, with an unskilled teacher or an unscoped curriculum, you can actually do harm around well-being. And, you know, it's it's one thing to do harm around maths. It's another thing to do harm around well-being. And so we have to be really, really careful with this as well. 
And it goes to that point too, right? Um, the Maslow's before the blooms, which is we need to get the well-being of the child in in check before they can even learn. Because if a kid's well-being isn't there, they're never going to be taking any of that learning in. So yeah, yeah, the, the importance within that space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Alice, did you have our next question? Sorry, is it? Um, oh. yeah, I just wanted to kind of ask that um when we're looking at well-being in the school space are we talking you know solely focused on students or you know how do teachers kind of fit in in that space as well you know how do we support the well-being of teachers as well as students yeah I think the, the field's evolving and one of the big evolutions uh the recent evolutions in the field is a much greater emphasis on the well-being of the educator themselves. And, you know, I think in the the first decade of well-being education, maybe early 2000s through to about 2013, there was a real emphasis on students and the development of student curriculum. And, you know, we worked with some of the world's leading psychologists to develop uh, a whole scoped and sequence K through 12 curriculum, um, which was taught to students. And that's great. But as I've said previously, you know, if it's not being delivered by highly skilled, highly competent, highly, you know, well-trained teachers, it's, it can be can be variable in its effectiveness. And, and so we've also, you know, as teaching has become more and more challenging, more stressful, we've also recognized that you can have the best curriculum in the world, but if you've got a, a teacher that's stressed and, you know, really struggling and it's, um, uh, it's, it's impossible really to effectively teach wellbeing skills to students um, in many ways. So, yeah, so we actually really, one of the ways this field has evolved is a, an intentional focus starting uh, on the wellbeing and effectiveness of the educator first uh, because of the downstream effect on students. So, yeah, we feel that um, if a school is going to embrace wellbeing education really strategically, you've got to have a big whole school approach. Like you've got to have a strategy around it. Then you've got to make sure we get the teachers right. And then a, a third, like a distant third almost, is a is the curriculum around the students. But we've got to have those foundations in place first. And I, I, I completely agree around, you know, looking after or supporting the people that we're expecting to deliver this to the students and and embed it into the school culture, you know, if you've got teachers that are, like you said, stressed or burnt out and, you know, not coping, then they're not going to be delivering those wellbeing messages, those strategies effectively. And, you know, we want to, working in this space, we want to get it right. We're not wanting to cause harm to our students. And so I think that message is really important. Yeah, one of the we 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 were part of a we helped run a uh, five year study funded by the Australian government that was an independent study run by the University of Melbourne um, at Geelong Grammar School um, five or six years ago. One of the key findings that emerged in the early data was the fact that um, uh, the teacher the teacher themselves has a, a hugely oversized impact on the success of the program compared to other normal subjects. You know, we we know that the teacher's relationship with the child is crucial for science and English and maths and history. Um, and arguably the most important factor in a child's learning is the relationship with the teacher, right? We know that's true of all subjects. What we see in wellbeing education is it might be five or 10 times more important because um, when you're teaching maths, you have a curriculum and then you have a teacher separate from the curriculum. But when you're teaching well-being, 
the teacher is the curriculum in many ways. You know, you you can learn algebra, algebra from a grumpy so-and-so who doesn't like children. You can still learn algebra, but you can't learn about kindness or forgiveness or hope or love or honesty or flow states from a teacher who's disengaged and 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 has poor relationships. So the teacher themselves kind of is the curriculum with well-being education. And and that's why, you know, it, it's 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 important to get the teacher right teaching science. It's even more important to get the teacher right teaching well-being because of the int- intricate or the in- integrated nature of the content and the human teaching it. So, yeah, it's really really important. Going back ten years ago, David, and you were sharing one of the lessons that you learned with that Year Ten mindfulness group. Tip, you know, fast forward ten years, what other lessons have we learned within this yeah. space? Yeah, it's a great question. Um. One of the biggest lessons we've learned is uh, how to uh, harness and leverage data, well-being data, much more effectively. You know, the early days of well-being education, when we began, there really weren't very sensitive or effective measurement tools for, particularly for young students, but but for older students. And the fields evolved significantly, so we have much better ways to measure well-being. We know how to manage um, data more effectively, how to learn from it, how to um, implement it, and adapt and evolve from it. So that would be one. Um, I think we've also learned how important parent partnership is. And I, I know you had a recent podcast just on parent partnership. Again, in, in well-being, you know, it's uh, I would argue the partnership with a parent is more important than than any other part of schooling because uh, again, of the, the outsized impact that a mother or a father or a carer has on their child's well-being compared to a teacher. You know, a teacher can have a huge impact, but in many cases, the parent has a way, way bigger impact on the child's well-being. So having parents as and carers as partners in this program is something we failed to do in the early days of well-being education. I think we also failed um, to partner with with students effectively. And and again, with well-being, we're, we're reaching an inflection point, I think, in the field where um, a couple of schools we're working with now have have really taken a humble stance where they're putting their hands up and saying, we we, we just don't really know what's actually affecting the well-being of a 12-year-old child in our school right now. We just, we don't really, really know what social media platform we're using. We don't know what TikTok challenge the girls mm-hmm. are doing that's affecting their well-being. Like the actual pr- reality on the ground is so, so qualitative and materially different from the way life was when I was a 12 year old boy or, you know, or girl, you know, so it's because of social media and artificial intelligence and the way kids are living now, we kind of have to partner with them because we just don't know. We can empathize and we can try and imagine, but we have to partner with them to help us, you know, help them with their well-being. So again, we failed to do that really effectively in the early days of well-being education. Um, I think the other thing, the last thing we failed to do was recognize how customized well-being programs need to be to be effective. They need to be really embedded deeply into the culture of a school. And the most effective well-being programs we see are where, you know, schools um, look outside to what's happening. You know, they kind of have an outside-in approach. They bring the outside-in other programs and ideas, but then they incubate them, digest them internally, create their own version that they then share outwards from into their community. And, you know, I think in the early days, again, of wellbeing education, we thought you could kind of grab an off-the-shelf curriculum or program and pop it into a school. But actually, and that can work sometimes, but actually the most effective strategies are where it's um, internally created. So, yeah, I think, we, we, and we still, and many more, we could talk for hours about yeah. the mistakes we made and continue to make because it's hard. This work's really hard and and really challenging. Yeah. Can I take you back to one of your first points when you were sharing that we've gotten better with data collection? For a school that's really doing well in that area, what, what does quality data collection look like from a wellbeing sense? Yeah. So um, one of the colleagues we've worked with in the past is Dr. Peggy Kern from the University of Melbourne, and she's one of the leading 
um, scientists in, in Australia um, around wellbeing measurement, um, particularly in schools. Um, and her advice to me, I had a coffee one day with her and her advice to me was, David, look, schools should not be measuring wellbeing at all. They just shouldn't be measuring wellbeing unless unless you have a very clear strategy about why you're measuring, a very clear strategy around what data you're going to collect, a very clear strategy about how you're going to respond, and a very clear strategy about the messaging that goes back to your community. But unless you've got all those four things done, don't don't collect wellbeing. Uh, and it's a really important message because, again, you know, I, I've been part of this problem as well, where we collect data from students to the point where they become saturated and and that you can't get good data from them anymore because they've been over-surveyed. Um, so or we don't provide any uh, reflection back to them so they kind of de it gets devalued um so really what we're looking at is really asking schools why you what do you, why you know what firstly what's the purpose of this data what are you going to do with it why do you want to measure exactly what are you measuring and then what are you going to do with it how are you going to respond when you get the data and are you prepared to respond do you have the courage to respond to data that might not be favorable and thirdly you know how are you going to message this what are you going to how are you going to what are you going to say to parents how are you going to share this with the students with the, with the staff whatever it might be um so we really start there, go really slow, make sure all of those parameters are set up first. And then you can look to some fantastic measurement tools, um, you know, like like Flourishing in Schools with Jason Van, Jason Van Shee's product out of Western Australia or Resilient Youth Australia here in Victoria or a whole range of other products that are available, fantastic tools, um, but got to have those foundations set up first. Yeah, and I love how throughout our conversation, um, David, something I'm always big about is strategy and it's been a key word um, that you've really um, embedded throughout our chat. And I, I think that strategy in, in all areas within our school is so important because if if we don't have a strategy to what it is that we're trying to do, yeah. you know, it, it's just a guessing game and a dartboard yeah. approach really. Yeah. So th thank you for sharing that. So you talked a little bit about some of your lessons learned and there are some really important lessons that you've shared there. And I think it's probably, you know, for our listeners tuning in, probably some of the lessons that they're currently learning or have yeah. learnt um, along their journey in terms of wellbeing education. Um, so they're probably, I guess, feeling a little bit affirmed that, oh, yeah, you yeah. Know, I'm not the only one in this space experiencing this. What have been yeah. some of the successes, do you think? No, none. The whole thing's been a failure. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> no, um, well, at least no, you can be honest about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the big, the, the biggest success, and it, it's it, it's a big success if you if you're able to just take a time machine back twenty years, the concept of well-being didn't even exist, let alone any kind of strategic, evidence-informed approach to well-being, and. Um, it's not to say schools haven't done well-being. As, as long as schools have been around, schools have always done well-being, but it was never intentional. It was never strategic. It was never evidence-based. And in part, that's because there wasn't a science of well-being yet. You know, that only really emerged in the early 2000s with you know, Professor Martin Seligman becoming the president of the American Psychological Association and kind of all the work that came out of University of Pennsylvania and then Michigan and then Ivy Leagues and then Melbourne University and others. But so this whole field kind of had to be birthed first. And then there was kind of a, a courageous embrace from some early adopters to take the science and allow it to um, enhance schools. And so I think the biggest success is that, you know, I can jump on a call with two um, outstanding educators who have not met before, Alice, and I can ask you, what's a wellbeing school, you know, look like? And you're not, your area of expertise is not wellbeing education. It's not your specific field and, and neither is yours, James, but with great clarity, you can articulate what a wellbeing school looks like and all the factors and features. And I think that is 
a, a huge measure of success is that um, the field has allowed this work to become mainstream, that it's so uh, visible and available now to schools. There's some fantastic resources available for free from state governments and international governments around the world. And so I think that's a huge success. Um, we haven't won this battle yet, though, because we're still making a lot of mistakes. It's still really hard. We're still learning a lot. It's still very early days of wellbeing education, early days of wellbeing science. Um, so we've still got a long way to go. But um, the fact that schools are taking a strategic approach, the fact that governments are embracing it, I think is is huge success. And um, and when I walk into, you know, when I walk into schools around Australia internationally, um, the language, the um, literacy around wellbeing is massively enhanced to what it was even five years ago, where I walk into a school and most schools wouldn't know what, um, what you know, re a resilient strategy might be or what character strengths are or what mindfulness is or what a flow state is or what growth mindset is, you know, some of these kind of core fundamental parts of the science we're just not really known about but now kind of it's becoming much more part of our common language the vernacular um the there's a greater literacy in students and in educators around well-being science so so we're getting there a long way to go yeah we we've we've spoken a lot uh, about the bigger picture stuff um david but say i'm a teacher listening to this podcast now um wh where should schools begin within the well-being space yeah i i think um you mentioned um, I, I sit on the board of PISA, which is the Positive Education Schools Association, and it's Australia's peak body for wellbeing education schools. And um, you know, I'd recommend going there. It's just a, a not-for-profit um, uh, association of, of you know schools around Australia, and, and some very small little primary schools through to some of you know some large boarding schools in Australia, and, and everything in between. Um, so it's a great place to start where you can connect with like-minded educators, a whole load, load of resources there. Um, so PISA is a great organization to connect with if you're interested. Um, and outside of that, there are, um, there are so many, uh, as you said, providers that, um, and again, PISA can connect you with providers. There's loads of TED Talks available now, loads of research. So I think that would be my starting point for most schools is go and talk to someone who's doing this, go and talk to some other schools locally who are doing wellbeing education, ask them what they're learning about. Um, and if you wanted something really specific, like a part of the field to dive into, it would be the, the work around character strengths uh, and character science, which um, is a very um, safe place to begin in terms of the science. It's very uplifting. It's one of the most evidence-informed parts of the science. Um, if you go to viacharacter.org, um, there's a whole range of free resources for educators, some amazing stuff. And it's a beautiful, uplifting part of the science. And it sits right at the core of wellbeing science, actually, which is, you know, a focus on the positive human qualities that we all have and I'm trying to learn to understand those tools better. So the work around character strengths is where I would begin. Perfect. Thanks for sharing there, David. Yeah. Um, it, it's really quite interesting, um, you know, listening to all the different places that you can go to gather information and, you know, there's probably many listeners of the podcast sitting there going, oh, well, I'm just a humble classroom teacher and, yeah. you know, my school decides, makes all of those decisions for us and just tells us yeah. that, you know, we have to do X, Y, or Z, whatever it is that they've chosen. Would you say that this work is relevant for all teachers or is it, you know, ones that are interested? What What are your thoughts? Yeah, the teacher Jason that I mentioned in the early story, um, I did, I never had a chance to ask him because I, I I met him before I got into this field. But my guess is he would have had no idea what wellbeing education is or positive education is, what wellbeing science is. But he was doing it and living it every day, and it was because of the fact that his craft was informed by 
at like accidentally not informed, but it was so coherent with the science um, that he was a brilliant teacher. And in fact, in 2011, uh, years and years ago, another lifetime, I wrote a book on uh, the best educators in the world. I co-authored a book where we looked at um, five of the best educators in the world, the USA Teacher of the Year, Australian Teacher of the Year, UK Teacher of the Year, New Zealand Teacher of the Year. And we looked at what is it that they do differently from the rest of us. Um, and what we found is they, they kind of do well-being education better. They don't talk about it. They don't use that language. They just kind of intuitively do it. And um, so, so to answer your question, Ellis, um, yeah, we, we think this field absolutely is for everybody. Um, and if you're, if you're in a school where there's heaps of support around it, that's brilliant. And you've got a whole school approach and a strategy and opportunities to train teachers. Brilliant. And we can help you rewrite a program and design your own custom framework. Awesome. We can do that. But if you're in a little school where there's no capacity or there's not a, such a strategic focus on that, um, maybe even especially then you should be embracing this work because, you know, I, um, what we the, probably the biggest lesson, in fact, it is the biggest lesson we've learned. I've learned in the, in the first 20 years, of this work is, um, that wellbeing, you know, well in schools, wellbeing doesn't occur in policy documents. It doesn't occur in government funding. It doesn't occur in the way you set up a school or train your teachers. The, where wellbeing really occurs is the sacred space between an educator and a child in that beautiful sacred space. And, you know, I think all of us almost get choked up thinking about it, but the moments that I've had, I had as a child, as a student where a teacher said something to me or did something to me or helped me through a difficult time or was just there for me. Um, and the opposite where a teacher did something that was really upsetting, but, but well-being occurs in that beautiful sacred space between an educator and a child. And that's why, of course, we embrace whole school approaches, but ultimately all that matters is that sacred space, you know, and, and therefore every single teacher that's just 1% informed is making the world a little bit of a better place. And if you can have two teachers that are 1% informed, and then you get you get 100 teachers in a whole school, they're just a yeah. tiny bit elevated in terms of the way they're delivering their pedagogy. You have this kind of ripple compounding effect. And and that's why, you know, we, we love this work because we're not trying to radically transform education. We're just saying, Ellis, you're a fantastic educator. What if, what if the science could make mm. you 1% better? Yeah. And then kind of working from that position. Yeah. And I think, you know, it does have that ripple effect on, your classroom and, and your students' ability to learn in that classroom and in that space when you get that right. You know, you, you talked about the impact of teachers on students and it got me kind of thinking about, you know, as an educator, the morals and the values that we have and that we take into that space and that we share with the students that we have and really kind of going from a space where, you know, where we're openly kind of sharing and modeling that with our students so that we can enhance the learning of literacy yeah. and we can enhance the learning yeah. of numeracy and all of those other key learning areas because we've got that foundation right and we're, you know, providing that safe space to learn and to connect and, you know, it it, it was really quite... Mm. Mm. some nice thoughts going <laughs> yeah. around yeah. in my head yeah. just kind of and you know it, connecting lots of dots yeah 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 it does and that's yeah well-being education does connect a lot of dots I think that's a great way it's almost a definition of what it's trying to do is connect a lot yeah. of dots in a really strategic way and so I love that and um the one thing I would add to to your point Alice is it whilst we have a big focus on you know ensuring that students feel safe seen and belong um we also have a focus on optimizing and performance like a a lot of the science of human well-being is around um, optimizing human performance as well. So we're also interested in taking 
students or teachers that are doing brilliant, that are nine out of 10 and just loving life and saying, can we enhance their craft or enhance their performance as a student just 1%? Because all of the science around, you know, um, performance, accomplishment, um, engagement, some of the, the neuroscience around flow states and the impact and um, even the, the impact of emotions on performance. So yeah, we, we, we're interested in the, um, the most important fundamental parts of connection and belonging but we're also interested in the other end where which is the really high performance stuff which for some schools and educators and students is actually the hook that we need and you know we, we talk about um different hooks for different fish and we, we have a really big emphasis on creating a whole range of different entry points or hooks in well-being education and sometimes high performance is the hook sometimes it's belonging sometimes it's emotion sometimes relationships sometimes the science but every human uh, on you know that we've ever met in education we can always hook them somewhere but it's kind of about making sure we find what, what really interests people um, with the science and on that point um in your answer before david you were talking about a whole school approach when um alice gave her example of talking about a teacher maybe just within their school and then you were sat talking about a whole school approach yeah. what does that mean to you and what does it look like within a school yeah, when we see wellbeing education have its biggest impact, and 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 many of the schools where wellbeing is most wellbeing education is most impactful is in um, you know low socioeconomic uh, situations or where with disadvantaged students, but also with with schools that are mainstream schools doing great. Um, so where we see it really flourish and really transform a, a culture or community is is when there there is support from the senior leadership. You know, when we think about the executive layer of a of a school, the executive kind of stakeholder, they need to be really bought in to have a long-term high impact sustained effect of wellbeing education because there's funding attached to that and there's um, resources attached to that resource allocation. So the leadership's got to be involved. Um, then you've got to have the teachers is kind of the next layer of stakeholder. And, and, you know, we've got to be empowering teachers and that's, you know, our organization really is hyper-focused on providing tactical um, strategies for teachers to elevate their craft and wellbeing and, uh, and effectiveness. And so, Really, when we get a whole school approach working, we've got leadership, we've got teachers really excited and uh, embracing the science. And then you've got students, you know, you've got to have a, a student-focused curriculum or approach, a strategy that's really effective. And lastly, um, parents, you know, we've got to have parents on board because of the, how impactful they are um, in terms of well-being of, of students, parents and carers. So um, we kind of think about the four layers, leadership, teachers, um, students and parents and and when you have them all together aligned when you have a strategy it's coherent when you have a language it's coherent we all know where we're going we all know what we're talking about that's where you have this kind of um, um kind of virtuous upward spiral like a a multiplier effect of each of the different stakeholders affecting each other so that's what we talk about when we talk about whole school approach yeah and i think it's it's really interesting that for it to be to have the impact that we're looking for we have to be in partnership with all of those stakeholders, you know, it's not yeah. just enough, I guess, to have that connection with your students, but also, you know, if I'm a teacher in a classroom, having and building that partnership with the parents of my students so that they're filtering that then into the home environment and, you know, conversely looking at, you know, doing that with, with leadership and in partnership with them as well. What kind of... Um, you know, if there were a couple of strategies that you might, um, what do you, you know, you go to if you're a teacher in a classroom, what kind of tools or tricks or strategies yeah. would you give our listeners? Yeah, one of um, one of the one of the favourite strategies we're helping um, educators with at the moment um, is called empathy upload. It's one of the kind of 
top seven most popular tactics we have at the moment. Um, empathy upload. And empathy upload is based on a um, whole lot of evidence and science around compassionate empathy, which is really understanding the needs of others and acting in response to that and allowing your behavior to be affected by the needs of others. Um, and so uh, empathy upload is a process where you walk into a class and just imagine this kind of scenario where there's 25 students in front of you and you walk into that classroom. And for the first minute or the first 30 seconds at least but the first minute of the class what you're doing is looking at each child and just attempting to put your mind into their mind put your heart into their heart so you look at james who's sitting in the front row and you think oh james he scored a goal in soccer yesterday so he'll be excited and look at alice and you think oh she missed out on the school play today i know she she missed out on that role so she's gonna be pretty sad there's there's angela over there her dog died yesterday there's simon over there his parents are having some like I've, I've got kind of this kind of the um, lives of the children washing over me before I begin the lesson it takes about two or three seconds for each child. Um, and you cannot teach a lesson the same way when you've got the, the lives of these children washing over you compared to if you don't, it's called empathy upload it takes about 30 seconds, 30 seconds to a minute. And you literally kind of have the lives and, the, and the, the minds and the hearts of these children in your heart and mind as you begin the lesson. Um, it's a very, very powerful strategy. It doesn't work for all teachers. And, and the thing about all of these tactics are there's an appropriate time. There's an appropriate kind of uh, opportunity. And for some teachers, they like it, some don't. So, um, but that's one of them. Um, some teachers are doing that strategy, by the way, before the lesson begins, just using names on a list, on a roll or a, a list of students' names before they enter the classroom. So that's one of them. Um, and we love that one. Another one we're using at the moment to help teachers at the end of term, uh, end of the year here in Australia, um, it's called a physiological sigh. And this is leveraging a whole range of science that's coming out of uh, Yale and others, but it's designed to, um, uh, manage stress in real time. And it requires you to take, uh, in real time, you're taking a really deep, deep breath, topping it up with another little breath on top, and then a slow, deep breath out. It takes about five seconds. And in that slow, deep breath out, your your lungs literally compress your heart, which causes an increase in blood pressure. Your heart sends a message to your brain to say, I've got higher blood pressure by the vagus nerve. Your brain slows down your heart and it kind of triggers a parasympathetic calming response that you feel across your whole body. So it's called a, uh, it's called a physiological sigh, two deep breaths in, uh, a long deep breath out. And in real time, you just feel this instant kind of calming effect that allows you to, to navigate what's happening in the classroom more effectively if you're feeling a bit stressed. So so they're two examples of a, a kind of a relationship-based tactic and a kind of real-time stress management tactic. Mm. I quite like the the last one. I was picturing a few students that I know that that would be kind of really um, impactful for. It's brilliant. Um, and, and I was also thinking, oh, gosh, like, you know, moments in just in, a, in the everyday where I'm like, I think I might try that strategy when, no, you, you know, should. things yeah. kind of get on top of you and you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed and it's like, oh, I yeah. just need to you know, calm the farm and yeah, calm the farm, <laughs> calm yeah. the farm and, and we, move on. And we, um, yeah, and we do teach the neuroscience and the physio physiology behind that as well, which is empowering. And, and a lot of, a lot of these tactics are kind of not rocket science, but when you understand the mechanism behind, that can be really empowering for students and educators as well. And that's where they really get on board. And then you show the science and the impact it has on performance when you're a little bit more, a little bit less stressed than you were five minutes ago. And that's pretty cool. So yeah, you should try it, Alice. Next time you're about to make a phone call to a grumpy parent or <laughs> get an email that fires you up or Psychological yeah. Physiological side. Yeah, Physiological really sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely going to be giving that one a go. So <laughs> how can our listeners, David, Find out more about the work that you're doing and get in touch with you. 
Yeah, I think the two best places you can go to our website, thewellbeingdistillery.com and connect with us there if you're interested in all of this wellbeing education stuff um, or connect with me on LinkedIn, David Bott, on, on, you'll find me on LinkedIn and I love having conversations with educators around wellbeing. We are super nerdy and passionate and love this stuff and, and love sharing. And so, you know, just anything we can do to support you, we'd, we'd love to be able to help anyone or have a conversation or point you in the direction of some resources, whatever it might be. But yeah, please feel free to get in touch on LinkedIn or thewellbeingdistillery.com. David, really loved hearing your passion and, and the amount of knowledge um, and research that you've done within the wellbeing area is, is evident um, with your uh, how you showcased your knowledge tonight. And Alice and I um, thoroughly enjoyed it. And when I ask you this question, Alice, I know it's going to be so hard, but Alice, what's your takeaway from tonight? Oh, my goodness. So many key takeaways. I definitely think I'm taking away the. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say it wrong. Is the physiological side? Did I get it well right? Well done. Oh, there you yes. go. Winning. <laughs> <laughs> definitely going to be taking that one away. I think it's going to be very valuable uh, moving forward for me and for you know the little people in my context. Um, oh, I really think one of the key takeaways that I got away. that I'm taking away from our conversation is that, you know, even if you are just one teacher in a classroom, that this work is still important and you can still make a difference to the people in front of you um, and really have that impact not only on the students' well-being but on their learning and their ability to connect with you as an educator and with you know, the other students within your classroom um, just because your school perhaps is not on the bus <laughs> in terms of wellbeing science and wellbeing education doesn't mean that that, you know, precludes you from joining in or, you know, giving it a go. Um, you know, often it takes one person to start that bus and other people see that the impact of that work and are willing to kind of come along for the journey and and, you know, Everything has to start somewhere, I guess. But, you know, it's really important that we are, you know, looking at that science, we're embracing that science and really understanding the work and the research that's been done in this space and not just going, okay, well, you know, this cookie cutter program has come across my inbox and I'm just going to roll with that because that's my wellbeing strategy. You know, we really have to have a strong understanding around what the science is telling us works doesn't work you know what's been tried and failed um and what the you know the lessons learned um along the way um so i think being informed is really really important in this work there might (laughs) a few key takeaways there was i could see you were deep in thought um through the sharing there but but that that's awesome Mine, I've got uh, one, which is just strategy, strategy, strategy. We've got to be meaningful and we've got to be purposeful about what we're doing within this space, relating back to what you're talking, Alice, not not taking the cookie cutter approach, looking within our individual context of where we're at, where do we want to be, then in that process, mapping it out, looking at the science, but also the cool 
core thing that you called out, David, is is upskilling our teachers. They need to, whatever it is that we decide, we need to bring them along for the journey and they need to be co-creating the journey with us and that we need to provide them with the time, with the professional learning and understanding to what it is that we are asking for them to do. Because without that understanding, without that training, it's going to be tokenistic for what it is that they're going to be doing in their classroom, which then could be detrimental, like one of the experiences um, you were sharing with us, um, David. And the the last point that I'm taking away is just for myself um, to to go back. I won't be able to quote the names and, and some of the doctors from the research, but just going back and looking at some of their journal articles and, and more of the research that's out there from some of the people that you spoke about, mm. um, because there was some research within that area um, that, that I wasn't aware about. So I'm always keen to learn more. Um, so that that's my takeaways. David, any closing remarks that you'd like to share with us? Uh, two very quick ones. Firstly, um, thank you for the work that you got that you guys do um, in, in providing a platform for conversations like this. Really, really grateful, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, but, but more importantly, um, just thank you. Just on behalf of Australians, on behalf of the world, just a thank you to the, the professional educators that we have. Um, you know, I've got, I've got a, a child who's at, at a primary school, not far government primary school, not far from where I live in uh, grade two, and, and one in prep in the first year of school. Um, and it, the day-to-day work that educators do to support, to nurture the well-being, to nurture the lives, help craft the lives of the next generation. Wow. I just am so grateful and in a war of the work you do. And just so thank you for that, like the, the hundreds and hundreds of micro moments of interaction every single day you're having as an educator, you're having hundreds of micro moments of interaction that's literally shaping the lives of these children. And and you, just to pick up on a point you said earlier, Alice, you will never know where those impact where those micro moments go and many of those ripples the impact of those moments teachers never know but they are literally changing the lives and shaping the lives of children so just thank you for everything that teachers give um, of their heart and soul to the lives of um, our next generation so love this profession and love you guys thanks for the chance to be part of it david it was a pleasure mate Thank you for joining us for Season 3, Episode 30 on Wellbeing Education with David Bott. You know where to find us on our socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Teacher Takeaway Podcast. Share any other recommendations of people you'd like to for us to chat with. There's plenty of um, amazing people out there, and we were, about eight. we were able to be joined by one tonight in David Bott. We'll see you next time.